All right, so today um, we have Professor Eric Nelson here with us on the Green Tea Podcast. Um, welcome, Professor Nelson. It is really good to have you. Can you maybe just introduce yourself for everybody else on the podcast who might be listening? Sure. So uh, I'm an associate professor now in the economics department here. I'm actually also the chair of the department right now. Um, I came in 2010. And I was hired um, to teach beyond the core courses, environmental economics courses. So most of my electives have to do with environmental economics. That's really um, that's really wonderful. So mm-hmm. currently, you know, this semester, what are you what are you teaching? I'm not actually teaching any environmental economics courses. <laughs> I'm teaching economic statistics and mm-hmm. intermediate microeconomics. I do try to introduce environmental related topics into those courses. So, for example, in economic statistics this semester, we're, we, we're working with data sets that have greenhouse gas emissions by country. Wow. We're also working with uh, water quality data. It's a big mm-hmm. database that measures has measures of different levels of water quality across um, all lakes that are four hectares or larger in the northeastern United States. So, yeah, so we're just trying, I'm trying to, you know, we can tap, we can consider economic statistic issues, we consider microeconomic issues through the lens of environment. Wow. Cool. And what got you into like the whole economics and also environment, you know, that uh, intersectionality? Sure. Uh, It's actually a fairly long and winding road. When I was in, I majored in political science and philosophy in college. I was particularly interested in the existentialists, so uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and Mm. uh, um, Soren Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. Those were my two favorite philosophers. After college, I cooked at night at restaurants, and I interned for a couple of politicians, thinking that I might have been interested in politics quickly discovered that I didn't like uh, partisan politics, but I did. I was interested in policy making. Mm-hmm. So I then eventually went and got a master's degree in public policy from the University of Minnesota. And while there, I took a couple of courses on environmental and natural resource economics, and that's yeah. where I decided to focus on economic policy. So then from there, I was hired to work at a consulting firm in Washington, D.C., where most of our consulting work was with the U.S. EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and with the uh, Department of Agriculture. And so that's where, um, and then because of my, those courses I had taken in my master's program in environmental economics, the professors I had encountered there encouraged me to come back and get a Ph.D. in environmental economics. So I eventually went back to the University of Minnesota and got a PhD in applied economics with a specialty in environmental economics and conservation biology, actually. So. That's cool. Wow. And what, you know, what kept you here at Bowdoin? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they gave me tenure, so they didn't run me out of town. So that was one of the reasons I stayed. Uh, I mean, I enjoy the mix of teaching and research. Mm -hmm. You know, I had other opportunities. Bowdoin wasn't my only choice. I, um... And those other schools I would have gone to were large state schools, and I would have had a lot more opportunity to do research, and my teaching responsibilities would have been a lot less. Mm -hmm. But I wanted a better balance and mix of both teaching and research, so um, a liberal arts college like Bowdoin was kind of the best fit for my interests. So you're also part of a group of faculty members at Bowdoin Mm -hmm. who work on the environmental aspects of campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, could you tell us more about your role there and why having 
economics in the discussion is important. <laughs> well, so it's a sustainability implementation committee, mm -hmm. right? So we know that Bowdoin, for the last 20 years or so and continuing forward, has had kind of a, a long, run, long run plan to eventually, I, I would, I guess, make the, car, the, make the campus carbon free. Mm -hmm. And also to improve, for example, the water quality on campus, to just to make the campus more sustainable, reduce the amount of waste that the campus produces, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It seems like since I've been here and since I've been on SIC, I guess that's a good acronym for the, com um, for the uh, committee, we've primarily focused on the greenhouse gas goals for mm -hmm. the campus. So when I first started on the committee, that's when the, the Bowdoin community was kind of finalizing some of the larger solar deals mm -hmm. that, have, that have actually come to fruition now. So we've got their big solar farm near Farmington, Maine, mm -hmm. that provides, um, it actually obviously does not provide, does not directly create electricity that we consume on Bowdoin's campus, mm -hmm. but Bowdoin gets credit for yeah. funding or financing the renewable energy that's created and consumed probably up closer to Farmington than it mm -hmm. is here. But then the I was also on the committee when the deal was finalized and then when the, the construction of the large solar array on the former naval base was completed. And so primarily some of the, th I guess some of the bigger issues that we've talked about in the committee is how to move forward with more ambitious um, greenhouse gas reduction goals. So, for example, you, as you know, we have a, a boiler on campus that produces the hot water and yeah. the heat, and mm -hmm. that runs on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So there's been discussion about how can we create warm water, how can we create heat on campus that doesn't rely on the burning of fossil fuels in that plant. Um, there's also been talk about um, just, yeah, trying to, Try. Oh, uh, that, this is the other one. The other big focus has been on what, because we're not completely, as of this year, we were not completely 100% green energy mm -hmm. or electricity. There was a lot of talk about how do we buy credits and, um, you know, renewable credits and offsets that make up for the gap between the amount of electricity we produce on campus that's green and the amount of electricity that we consume that's not green. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to backtrack a little sure. bit for the um, any of the listeners mm -hmm. here who might not be familiar with some of the, the terms that we're, we're speaking about sure. here. So you're mentioning, you know, the renewable energy credits that yep. we are getting and then also, you know, us partaking in offset markets. Yeah. So can you explain it in simple terms for any of our listeners to understand and then again in the context of Bowdoin and how we're planning to kind of go forward with those. So when states started creating um, goals for how much of their electricity should come from fossil free sources they had to create kind of an accounting system for that. So the idea was that let's say the state of Maine wanted to have 10% of their electricity be created by fossil-free sources. So if you, to, to ensure that that happened, what they, what they would do is that if any utility that created electric or sold electricity in Maine created some electricity from a renewable resource, they got a credit for that. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the year, in total, you know, if there were a, uh, like a million kilowatt hours of electricity produced, 10% of that 
you would have to have credits or racks that accounted for 10% of that electricity production, right? Then Maine would have, the utilities that participate in Maine's electricity market would have fulfilled their requirement mm -hmm. for a 10%. So sometimes there are utilities or wind farms or whatever that create additional racks that they they don't need them for their own requirements, but they're willing to sell them to others who are short of meeting their, you know, kind of requirements under different state policies. Mm -hmm. So there's this market then for these tradable credits that are created when someone generates electricity from a fossil-free use. So Bowdoin was buying those. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I remember a couple of years ago, we were mm -hmm. buying some credits from a wind farm in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, we've also bought credits from a waste facility in New Hampshire that turned the methane that was emanating from the decomposing waste into a, like uh, of natural gas that was burned and used to create uh, power. So we we used to Bowdoin bought those to because like let's say you know um, if we create if we were using ten thousand kilowatt hours of electricity on Bowdoin's campus, but only five thousand of that came from renewable resources. The other five thousand. Uh, kilowatt hours had to be accounted for somehow, so yeah. we would buy those credits. Yeah. Uh, so when when Bowdoin, in I think it was 2016 or 17, first announced that they were 100% carbon free, some of that was not actual. It was not that we weren't actually producing or using fossil uh, fossil fuel energy. It was that we were compensating for or making up for that by buying these credits. Mm -hmm. But now. I'm fairly certain, I'd have to clarify this, but I'm fairly certain given the solar array on the naval base, given the mm -hmm. solar array up in Farmington, et cetera, yeah. we no longer have to buy credits to claim that Bowdoin is now 100%, mm -hmm. at least on the electricity side, yeah. not the hot water, mm -hmm. not the heating of buildings, et cetera, not the air conditioning. Well, yes, the air conditioning would be because that's electricity-based, but yeah. And um, does the locality of where you buy mm. those you know, credits matter sure. in any way? So that was also a discussion, right? This idea that we were buying renewable energy that was created in the Midwestern United States. Mm -hmm. And could we support um, efforts to create renewable energy in Maine or New England in general? Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's why I think the school was particularly excited about the Farmington project, because that was at least, that even if that electricity wasn't being directly consumed on Bowen's campus, it was being consumed nearby. Yeah, and there was talk at the time that maybe some professors here would want to would want to use that site as kind of like a laboratory. Maybe they could do some experiments, mm -hmm. right? So, because what if? So, I don't know if you guys um, like one thing that people have worried about a bit with solar is that it takes up a lot of land, or it can take up a lot of land that could yeah. be used for other useful purposes. Mm -hmm. So there is talk about creating solar arrays that allow, for example, for sheep or cattle to graze, mm -hmm. you know, around them or underneath them. There's also projects to create a pollinator-friendly habitat mm -hmm. in between the panels. Um, so there was some talk at that time of that maybe we could do experiments or investigate ways to create um, dual land uses on it. Mm -hmm. I don't, and I don't know if that's actually happened. I don't know if any of the biologists or ecologists on campus have actually created any kind of working relationship with the farm. It's on a farm. This is a large yeah. farm near Farmington. 
Um, so that was talk about let's try to keep the renewable energy creation local. And of course, the base is hyper local, right? It's literally mm-hmm. across the street. So, mm-hmm. do you think that these uh, renewable energy credits are a good way to keep renewable energy like in the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think from an economist's point of view, right? You want to give um, entrepreneurs, you want to give utilities, mm-hmm. you want to give electricity generators. You want to give them incentive to create renewable or fossil-free electricity versus, you know, using natural gas or coal. So if you can say, look, for every unit of electricity you create with a windmill, Mm -hmm. not only will you get the payment for the electricity itself, right, Mm -hmm. because you sell electricity to people and they buy it and they use it, but we'll give you an additional payment just because you created this Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. Mm carbon-free. So as an account, and, you know, as an economist, the way that the, the 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 way I would promote the acceleration in our changeover from a fossil fuel based economy to a carbon free economy is we need to give people incentive, monetary incentive, to make that change. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, for example, we give people tax breaks to buy electric cars. Mm-hmm. Right. And for a lot of people, that's the only reason they buy the electric cars, mm-hmm. you know, because all else equal, they're like, hey, with the electric car, I'm going to get basically $10,000 taken off my taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, but it's interesting because, you know, Tesla, for example, really benefited from those tax credits. So, you know, more people bought the Tesla than they would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Then Tesla got better at making electric cars. It became mm-hmm. a bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. That kind of had that virtuous cycle where people became more and more interested in Tesla. Right. Then it became kind of like a status symbol of some sort. It's like mm-hmm. kind of cool to have it. Yeah. And now that has created the, the situation which I was thought was unthinkable just two or three years ago where all the major car companies in the world now are trying quickly to mm-hmm. change how they how they build cars and are trying to create an electric car fleet mm-hmm. and that's i would that's primarily due to the tesla effect right tesla mm-hmm. is so valuable its stock it's capitalized stock price is such that it's one of the most valuable companies in the world mm-hmm. and you know, would Tesla have gotten to this point without those tax credits? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the kind, it's those tax credits, it's the same idea behind, would we have as much wind energy without those te- without those wrecks, without mm-hmm. those renewable credits? No way. Right. Would we have mm-hmm. as much solar? No yeah. way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. So there's a, a lot of, typically there's a lot of negative connotations that are associated with, oh, Bowdoin has, you know, just purchased this you know they've yeah. purchased their way out of you know yeah. or purchased their way into having this you know net carbon sure. image but really when you look into the economics of it we're actually doing a lot of good work with with the money isn't it it's a lot of incentivizing for mm-hmm. good technological change and yeah. it's really an, inv- an investment into the future Right. Sure. Ideally, it would be great if Bowdoin could create enough solar, po- you know, solar power, and I don't know, we could have our own windmills on the naval base that we actually created so much power that we were literally all of our electricity that we consumed directly on campus mm-hmm. was all created by the nearby solar arrays and windmills. But that was not possible mm-hmm. two or three, four years ago. So a second best solution, not the ideal solution, is to 
use some of Bowdoin's fairly large endowment and fairly mm-hmm. la- large budget mm-hmm. to, you know, to basically buy renewable credits from elsewhere. And then that means money is flowing from Bowdoin to entrepreneurs and to companies who are in the business of creating renewable energy. And thus they have, you know, they're like, wow, okay, we're getting more and more money to do this. Let's keep expanding our operations. Let's keep mm-hmm. building more arrays. Let's keep building more wind windmills. So, mm-hmm. so now Bowdoin is a lot more focused on the heating plant, right? Mm-hmm. How do we um, create this low temperature hot water that's going to kind yep. of reduce our reliance on, on the heating plant? Yeah. And this is part of the new climate action plan that will exactly. be released soon. And you're also on that committee that's kind of thinking through it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the economics front, can you tell us about the financing of the climate action plan or maybe even just like your your thoughts as, as the climate sure. action plan is being put together and, and built ready for you know, release yeah so there are a couple of competing technologies to create this um this warm water or hot water that, that don't rely on you know burning either natural gas or fuel oil or or whatever um so i know that we haven't made a decision about which technology to implement i mean you know there's one common technology for creating um hot water and heating buildings geothermal, um, and what you can, what we're actually, what they're going to do at the new two new buildings they're building on campus, the um, the Mills Center and the new museum, is that they're using heat pumps mm. to cool and heat those buildings. Are you guys familiar with heat pumps? No. no. If you okay. can explain a little, yeah. that'd be helpful. So <laughs> heat pumps basically, okay. So right now, if you go to a typical house anywhere in the country. For heating, it probably burns natural gas or mm-hmm. propane, or here in Maine, a lot of actual oil. Oil is burned to create heat in a home. Mm-hmm. But what a fuel, what a what a um, <clears throat> what this other technology does, this heat pump technology, it actually uses electricity. To it has a fan system, and I don't know exactly the science behind it, but it has something to do with air pressure and the differences in air pressure. And it basically pumps in the winter warm air into the into the building, and in the summer it actually pumps cool air into the building. And so, unlike a heater that requires the burning of natural gas or propane, this would heat with electricity. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that once you can electrify your heating on campus. Well, we know that we know how to create um, fossil or carbon-free electricity. We can use windmills, we can use solar panels, we can whatever. So then we wouldn't need to rely on the burning of natural gas or fuel to create the heat that will go into all the buildings at Bowdoin. Mm-hmm. Right, so that would mean eventually we would have to retrofit all the buildings on Bowdoin mm-hmm. to go from radiator heating yeah. uh, to this heat pump or if we use geothermal so geothermal is basically taking the winter taking the heat that's created underneath the earth and just kind of moving that air into the buildings Mm -hmm. but so anyways these two new buildings that are being built right now will be heated in the winter not with heat produced by burning of fossil fuels but Mm -hmm. by these heat pumps Mm -hmm. got it and 
hopefully we would also have air conditioning as well, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the nice thing about these pumps is that in the winter, they pump in warm air. In the summer, they pump in cooler air. Mm -hmm. Now, they don't cool as much as an air conditioning unit. So if you really like that severe cold feeling (laughs) in the summer, like in a hot, you're not going to get that. So we have actually a heat pump in our house in Bath. We live in Mm -hmm. Bath. Um, And the, um, the heat a heat pump can only really, war- like one heat pump can only warm or cool kind of one area of the house. So in this, we have it in our kind of like entertainment room. So in the summer, it's as if that room has got slight air conditioning, mm-hmm. which in Maine is more than enough, right? Yeah. You just need a little, it's not like we're in Florida here. No. Where it would be probably harder. But in the winter, what's nice about it is that that warm air comes in and it, it makes the temperature in that entertainment room warm enough that the our backup heating which is based on um, propane doesn't have to be used as often Mm -hmm. so our house for example still relies on propane for heating on particularly cold days you know like when it's zero degrees out here the propane will be burned quite a bit but when it's hovering around 20 or 30 degrees or 40 degrees the heat pump is often enough to mm-hmm. warm the house. Got it. Yeah. And how does cost sort of play into this picture of, you know, whether we're going to be using the geothermal oh, sure, unit sure. or maybe the heat pumps? It's, yeah, I mean, that's it. I think my suspicion <laughs> is that as time goes on, I think the Bowden is hoping that one of these competing technologies starts to really separate itself. Mm-hmm. Right. In the way that, so that, because we don't want to make a commitment now to a certain technology and then find out 10 years from now that that technology just never progressed mm-hmm. and the other technology took off. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think what you're going to find with the next climate action plan when it's released, I think this spring, right? Isn't there's, I think it's supposed yeah, to be released this spring. I think it's right, probably at the end of the semester, right before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a little equivocation there about mm-hmm. how exactly we're going to get to this completely uh, carbon-free <coughs> campus. Mm-hmm. It won't commit to a certain technology, but it basically, so I think it's going to announce some kind of goal of complete carbon-free heating and cooling and electricity use on campus by like 2040-something. Mm-hmm. And the, while the electricity technology is pretty evident, solar, wind, batteries... When it comes to the heating of water and the heating of buildings, that's still going to be up in the air. Yeah, got it. Do you uh, do you want to talk more about how the financing of these climate action plans works? Sure. So it's all debt financing. Okay. So what happens is that, um, so for example, when when Bowden decided to build the Rue Center, mm-hmm. and of course the Rue Center has a bunch of solar panels on it. That was all financed by Bowdoin basically sold bonds. So they went to a big bank on Wall Street like J.P. Morgan. I can't remember which bank we went to. And J.P. Morgan then basically sold bonds on our behalf. Mm -hmm. And so then people would invest in these bonds. Mm -hmm. And then as bondholders, Bowdoin then will pay them back the principal plus interest. So that's how most capital projects are done on Bowdoin's campus. Every capital project is done that way on Bowdoin's campus. Mm-hmm. It's all through the floating of bonds. Mm-hmm. So what was particularly exciting over the last couple of years <laughs> was that interest rates were so low mm-hmm. because of 
um, the COVID, right, the, the idea that we were worried that with COVID and this, that the economy would kind of move into a recession if people didn't keep spending. Right. So interest rates were low, so people would take out loans and buy new cars, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, when interest rates are so low, that means when you issue bonds, you don't have much, there's not much interest you have to pay back to the bondholders. Mm-hmm. Right. So the last couple of years were actually good for capital projects on yeah. campus or the mm-hmm. financing of capital projects mm-hmm. on campus. Now, what's interesting, up until the, the war that started two weeks ago or so, a week ago or whatever, there was talk about how the U.S. Fed was going to start increasing yeah. that base mm-hmm. interest mm-hmm. rate, and then borrowing money for capital projects would have become more expensive. Mm-hmm. So right now on campus, obviously, we have these two big capital projects that are being built right outside where we are now. Those, of course, the bonds for those have already been issued, and those were issued during a time when the interest rates were lower. Mm-hmm. So that was, for Bowden, that was advantageous. So moving forward, if we so for example, one idea that's been floated is that we would create what's called this closed loop or closed cycle geothermal technology that would be buried under the ground in Farley Field somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And that would be the um, system that would heat a lot of our buildings and create a lot of the hot water. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the technologies that Bowdoin is going to keep an eye on over the next ten, twenty years. If we finally, let's say 10 years from now, decided to, let's go all in on that kind of plan, mm-hmm. well then yes, then Bowdoin would have to basically, again, go to a Wall Street bank and say, we, w- we need $30 million or whatever to finance this project. We would like you to issue bonds. And mm-hmm. then, then Bowdoin would be then on the hook for the next 20, 30 years after that, paying back the bond holders. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So during this uh, time period where the uh, interest was super low, yeah. did did Bowdoin take a lot of advantage of this? Were there a lot of newer projects issued, ones that were on hold in the past mm-hmm. that they didn't want to yeah. start before this because the interest was so high? Sure. I don't know specifically. You know, I'm only on the... We only deal with projects on the committee that are sustainability focus okay gotcha. right yeah. so if there's for example when they built the new there's that new locker room that they put over by the football field mm-hmm. or when they actually improve i don't know if you guys were here three or four years ago when they improved the football field and went from a grass field to a artificial turf field and they mm-hmm. did a lot they made the track better so they can actually mm-hmm. host mm-hmm. so i'm a, that obviously required some i know that a lot of that was funded by a gift that an, uh, a parent gave <laughs> But I also think there was some money raised for that project. So I have no idea how that was mm-hmm. done. Um, do, I don't think, I didn't get the impression that Bowdoin particularly uh, sped projects up. Mm-hmm. Or, right, they have this master plan. Right. And they actually have kind of capital projects um, detailed out for the next five or six years. So, mm-hmm. for example, when this is done, when the two new buildings are done, I know one of the big next projects is to weatherize and to kind of just to modernize sills yeah. mm-hmm. like sills is still sills for example that would have, that will improve the energy efficiency on mm-hmm. campus because that's a very energy inefficient building yeah. mm-hmm. so sills will be modernized i know that's on the table i'm trying I, I can't remember what any other large projects on. oh then the, then mm-hmm. after that's done 
there's going to be a new library built. Oh, wow. No, really? Yeah, that's so, exciting. Uh, when exactly that starts, right. there's still talk. There, it's still not finalized where that would go. I mean, I know mm -hmm. that there's, you know, one of the major proposals is to actually basically level H&L and put the new library right there on Whoa. that footprint. But then the problem would be, because H&L's oh, wow. got a lot of problems, too, when it comes to efficiency. Right. Um, one of the biggest problems with H&L are the windows, actually. The windows um, leak oh. uh, prodigiously, and oh. the retrofit up for the windows would be very, very expensive. Mm. It's also not very well insulated, things like that. Yeah. So um, it, the decision basically was we're going to, start with it we're going to create a new building so then the issue is if you put it where h&l is now that means you're going to have a year or two with a temporary library where is yeah. that temporary mm -hmm. library yeah um Farley. How, <laughs> how does and then the other question is how does hubbard because hubbard you know was the original campus library mm -hmm. and of course hubbard still has if you you guys have been into the stacks in hubbard have you right. been yeah, in, yeah. Mm -hmm. so there's still a lot of books in hubbard on the mm -hmm. back side of hubbard yeah. So would Hubbard somehow play a role as a temporary um, library or would it somehow right. be accommodated into the permanent new library? Because mm -hmm. you know with Hubbard, once the new Arctic Museum building is created, a lot of Hubbard will open up mm -hmm. because all of the mm -hmm. Arctic Museum, you know, the actual museum itself, plus all the staff, right. plus a lot of some of the material that's there will all move to the new building. So. Yeah. Right. There'll have to be a wow. reinvention of Hubbard, too, at mm -hmm. some point. Yeah. So through the years, what we're seeing is that a lot of the buildings that are kind of inefficient, mm -hmm. you know, leaking in windows and mm -hmm. you know, not insulating well, those buildings are going to be either replaced or weatherized, you know, right? Yeah. Kind of I, what's going on. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, yeah, so sills, you know, the, the, the envelope of sills, that's mm -hmm. like what they talk about, will become tighter. Yeah. Right. Right now, a lot of the older buildings are very, very leaky. Mm -hmm. right. My assumption, I wasn't here when they did it, but, you know, they they um, they read it Adams in the mid in, I think, about 2007 or eight. And when Adams Hall was redone, I'm sure they made the building much more efficient, energy mm -hmm. efficient, because that was a really old building. Yeah. So I think slowly they go they'll go through and yes, weatherize or update the buildings in some respects to make them more energy efficient. I mean, there's other things I know that the, the um, Keisha Payson, who is our sustainability director on campus, has done. So, for example, you'll notice that more and more of the buildings, including H&L, have the um, motion sensor lights. Mm -hmm. mm. Right, so it used to be when H&L was open, all the lights were on in the stacks, mm -hmm. right? So even if there was no one had walked down a particular aisle in H&L for like eight hours, the yeah. lights were burning and no one. So now if um, a lot of the stacks in H&L are dimmed until someone actually walks through the aisle and then they pop up, mm -hmm. right? So there's more and more of that type of, there. I know, for example, I've heard some stories about in Druck, when you're in the bathroom, yeah. If you don't move, if you're in there for a while and you don't move, suddenly it goes dark. Yeah. If no one comes in, and then you gotta wave your arms, right? So that's yeah. So I mean, you know, there's been that is one type of um, you know sustainability kind of measure that's that has occurred on campus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this we use a lot more compostable products on campus now. You guys notice the plastic cups you get right. at uh, like at, at, in Smith Union, they're all compostable plastic. They're basically, they're not, 
they're plastic cups using plant material and not oil or plastic. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, wow. Um, yeah, there's a seems like there's a lot of like energy efficiency practices at play on mm-hmm. campus. Uh, do you think that there's a way to incentivize more of this? Uh, well, I mean, it's not like we're a market economy here right. where we, where people have individual, like, mm. oh, you know, if, if I just had more, if I was just given more money to do this, I would do it. It's mm-hmm. a very, obviously, within Bowdoin, it's a very uh, hierarchical structure mm-hmm. where spending decisions are made at the top and then it kind yeah. of trickles down. Yeah. Right. So, in terms of incent, I don't know if we can create an incentive system on campus. I mean, what if if you're not happy with the pace of change on campus, or if what if you would like to see an accelerated pace of change when it came to how Bowdoin creates its electricity and heat, mm-hmm. et cetera? There, you would have to interact, I guess, with the kind of the power brokers at the top mm-hmm. and say. You know, instead of only devoting this much money to efficiency projects on campus, you should increase that budget by 10, 20 percent or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that is where, um, yeah, because unlike, for example, a market for electricity where you can put your thumb on the scale and say, hey, we want more of the electricity in this market to be carbon free. So let's pay a premium for carbon free electricity. We don't have that market system within the college. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, pressure from alumni, yeah. pressure f- um, from the board of trustees to accelerate projects, right? The, the, I've, you know, since I've been here, I've, I've come to realize that if there are certain trustees or if, I mean, if not certain, but if the trustees as a group want something done, mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So... That's where, that's the biggest lever gotcha. when it comes to affecting change on campus. Got it. Wow, that's, thank you. That's <laughs> quite enlightening. Um, let's focus more on then the larger market economy mm-hmm. outside of Bowdoin. Um, how do you think that technological change can sort of influence the economy or what kind of technology do you expect to be appearing in the energy market soon? We've talked about the EV industry. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that kind of pops up in your mind? Well, for a lot of economies, it's now the transportation sector that's the single biggest source of mm-hmm. carbon emissions. So, yeah, obviously getting... Um, I'm heartened by the fact that there are the two, two of the most popular trucks that are sold in this country will have electric versions soon. Mm. The F-150 electric version is coming out later this year, and then the Chevy Silverado or something, some other truck. I can't remember. Yeah. I just yeah. saw an ad for it the other day. Oh, sweet. Um, because trucks and SUVs are by far the most popular model mm-hmm. choices right now in the United States. So obviously electrification of all transportation, right? So then the other the other issue is how do we electrify trucks? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, delivery trucks like semis Mm -hmm. or the Amazon delivery trucks that Mm -hmm. you see in every large city, right? So I know Amazon, for example, has promised to buy 200,000 delivery truck, electric delivery trucks over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. They've actually already deployed some of them in the LA area as kind of like a test project. 
But so we need all the shipping industry to basically become electric too, mm-hmm. because actually those those are responsible for quite a bit of the transportation emissions. Right. Mm-hmm. There's even talk about we need. Well, obviously we are going to at some point need to make the ocean shipping yeah, yeah. technology mm-hmm. electric too. Right now, because that right now burns really dirty fuel oil. It's called bunker bunker fuel. That's what yeah. they burn. It's like the dirtiest of the dirty like yeah. oil based pro- oil mm-hmm. based products. So how do we make big, huge ships that ship shipping containers, mm-hmm. either electric or the other alternative? And this has become a bigger and bigger, I, I've noticed this is becoming a bigger and bigger player in the discussions about a carbon-free future is uh, carbon-free gas. Mm-hmm. Right. So right now, you know, natural gas, when we burn it, it's basically methane. And when you burn mm-hmm. the methane, carbon is produced but what if we could create like a hydrogen or some other gas Mm -hmm. that we could burn to create power Mm -hmm. but that gas was created with fossil fossil fuel free um, electricity Mm -hmm. right so what if we use windmills and solar panels to create hydrogen that we could burn Mm -hmm. or uh, some kind of natural gas that we could burn. Yeah. Right. So then at that point, there's actually no fossil fuel. There's no carbon emissions associated with that. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk about green hydrogen Mm -hmm. or green gas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot more. It seems a lot more energy. I mean, that's a bad bad (laughs) word. There's a lot more attention being paid to that. Um, in fact, there's in I know, for example, in the North Sea near England, they're trying to create this green hydrogen hub where they would cool. use, you know, all the windmills to actually create green hydrogen. So that's one technology I'm particularly excited about. I mean, the big technology that we're going to have to at some point solve and make fairly cost effective are batteries. Mm. Right. So. Yeah. So, of course, the problem is there are certain times in the day where the wind's not blowing and the sun is out, not out, because it's nighttime. So that's where coal-fired plants and natural gas-fired plants and nuclear plants are useful because they can always provide fuel no matter what the environmental condition, or energy, no matter what the environmental conditions are around us. So what do we do when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not out and we still need electricity? Well, if you have a battery that could have been charged when we had excess solar power and excess wind, then that the energy that was stored in the battery could be released, Mm -hmm. right? And so at that point, if you're confident in the ability for the batteries, you know, in the electric grid to make up for the times when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not out, then you can permanently and completely shut down the coal-fired electricity Mm -hmm. plants, the natural gas-fired electricity plants, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So... You know, battery technology, I know last year was the biggest year for battery technology installation. It was the biggest year because it's starting from such a low base, mm-hmm. right? So there's hardly any out there. So each year as we add more and more, it's going to seem like a very, it, the industry is exploding. It is, but it's exploding from such a low base. Mm-hmm. But because that, I mean, that's the biggest challenge. How do you deal with these intermittent sources of fossil fuel free energy? Yeah. The batteries. One other potential that would help, and it's really problematic in the United States, problematic everywhere, 
is we could make a grid, an electrical grid that's better integrated and more connected. So think about, let's say it's a really windy day in Iowa, and here it's not windy at all, and the sun's not out. And so if we don't, and if we're, let's say we're, prim- so New England, let's say we're primarily, this is, let's say, 20, 30 years in the future, and we primarily only have wind and solar power here in New England, but it's a bad day for wind and solar power. But in Iowa, for example, let's say the wind is really excessive and there's all this electricity, excess electricity being generated because they've used what they needed. Right. right now, it's almost impossible to ship that excess electricity from Iowa to New England mm-hmm. because our grid is not connected enough to make that. To make that. But if we could... So, for example, that's why I was actually disappointed to see the hydro line project defeated in Maine last fall. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted that clean power corridor to to pass because mm-hmm. that was going to take hydrogen, I mean, not hydro, uh, hydropower produced in Canada. There's excess hydropower in Canada, because mm-hmm. Quebec, because they can't use all that hydropower. Mm-hmm. It's, it just goes to waste. Oh, wow. And that was going to ship it down to Massachusetts mm-hmm. and help Massachusetts fulfill their, car, you know, their goal for um, 100% renewable energy and so that's an example where in this country we're going to have to become much more accustomed to large projects that involve wires and poles stretching across the country because that's the only way we're going to be able to fully utilize you know wind and solar and hydro that's generated in one spot but Mm -hmm. needed in another spot right Mm -hmm. because otherwise Every spot's going to have to create enough renewable energy for themselves, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. just that's very expensive. Mm-hmm. That's right. so much redundancy in the system, where you could just be smarter and bring excess renewable, or, you know, excess green energy from one part of the country to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you also see maybe EV charging stations or the lack of those as maybe like a potential, you know, obstacle to overcome as well? I think maybe like yeah. charging all those, say, um, like Amazon delivery trucks. Mm-hmm. You know, how would how would we be able to? I I think what I heard about the current EV charging stations today is that it takes kind of a long time for those. Vehicles yes, to well, charge. it depends on. So there are rapid charging stations, mm-hmm. right? Okay, yeah. So uh, I have an EV, for example, and I charge at home sometimes, and we just have a typical 120 volt plug-in. It's called a trickle charge. Mm-hmm. And it does trickle, mm-hmm. right? If you wanted to charge from zero to full capacity, it would take you probably 36 hours. Oh, wow. Okay. But on campus, we have some of the fast charging yeah. stations, mm-hmm. and you get a lot more power much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously, think about it now. If you're out of gas in your gasoline-powered car, you can have a full tank within about five minutes. You yeah. go in, you have yeah. to wait a couple of minutes at the pump, and then you're done. Mm-hmm. Right. So obviously for a lot of consumers, a lot of people, they'll only feel that electric vehicles and gasoline-powered vehicles are equal or mm-hmm. equally convenient if you can say, I'll just plug in for five minutes, yeah. and I go from 25% full to 75% full. Yeah. So obviously that's a technological breakthrough that that will be needed to convince most people to make the switch. We mm-hmm. need to be able to charge really really quickly. Yeah. Every year the the speed at which batteries are recharged increases. 
So obviously, the faster that happens, the more people will adapt. Mm -hmm. The um, okay, so that's one issue. The other issue is the range anxiety, right? So the idea is that because there's not many charging stations around, right? right you almost feel like you have to have enough, enough your your battery has to be charged enough to get to somewhere and back. Right. without ever having the luxury of just stopping and refueling like we can with gas. Yeah. So so there's two ways to deal with range anxiety. Either you make the range of your electric battery so large that, let's say, you could charge it up to 1,000 miles. You'd be like, I could go to Boston back four times before I have to recharge it. Mm -hmm. Or you do create stations, just mm -hmm. like we have gas stations, where you, you, you stop in and you recharge. And if that recharges fast, then again, it's really easy. Yeah. The one thing I would say right now, because electric vehicles are still only, I think they're only about 7 or 8% of all sales in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And in the, in, at least in the United States, most people charge at their house. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? And so there they can just charge at the house right so you don't necessarily worry about the fact that there's no public charging station nearby now again public charging stations does to make the trip to from you know from brunswick to philadelphia possible if there's public charging stations along the way right. so yeah that will have to eventually become over be overcome the one thing i would say though i think and this is interesting there's been a lot of work done on this People overestimate how much they actually travel. Mm -hmm. They feel like, oh, I I need a car that I need an electric car that at least has 500, 500 miles of range. Wow. But the vast majority of trips you take are five, ten, yeah. twenty miles at most. Mm -hmm. For some reason, people when they purchase or make think about purchasing decisions. They'll make a per. They'll say like, oh, "Well, once a year, I drive from Maine to North Carolina," mm -hmm. and they feel like, "Oh, I need a car that does that." Well, you could have a car that fulfills all of your day-to-day -day needs, and then for your trip down to North Carolina, just rent a car. Yeah. Right. So, point. so I think, I think you could you could easily deal with the fact that. Um, there's a lack of charging stations right now and that the range is not and then and then when you do find a charging station you might have to sit there for two hours or hour right. and a half or an hour to wait for the charging to completely go through mm -hmm. so there are ways to deal with that so yeah, um, yeah. Uh, speaking of EV mm -hmm. uh, is it so I know that obviously this electricity is um, going to fuel the car yeah. and you just plug it in yeah. it charges it but isn't the electricity that charges the car usually made from like coal burning or oil burning? So it, I, is that the next challenge that we would yes. have to tackle? And yep. Yeah. Okay. So there have been, uh, I have a couple of economist colleagues who have looked at this. They said right. they basically determined how green is your electric car depending on where you are in the country, right? Yeah. Because in different areas of the country, different percentages of electricity have produced carbon-free. So, for example, we don't think necessarily of Texas and Iowa as some of the more progressive states when it comes to uh, green energy. Mm -hmm. But, for example, Iowa leads all states in how much of the electricity comes from wind. Mm -hmm. You know, Texas 
because of the kind of the free market ethos in Texas and because wind and solar is cheap, yeah. it's becoming cheaper and cheaper and is now actually cheaper than coal. And because of all the tax credits that have been available, there's been a lot of development of wind and solar in Texas, for example. Cool. So you're right. In California, for example, the, there's so much green energy that mo- a, lot of the po- a lot of the electricity that you put into your car is green. Right. Up here in Maine, we're actually, you know, not as green as other parts of the country when it comes to how much, what percentage of our electricity is generated from, um, f- from carbon-free sources, mm-hmm. right? And there are places in the southern United States where it's actually the worst, yeah. right? So in the southern United States, there are areas where they still re- re- rely primarily on coal right. or and, and or natural gas. So though down there... Yes, the electricity that powers the electric car is actually fairly dirty. Mm-hmm. Here's, my, here's my kind of rebuttal to that, though. Uh-huh. What we really need is we need to create an electric car industry that's so cost-effective that most people, you know, we need to create an electric car industry such that the typical electric car costs the same as the typical gas-powered car. Right. Because then people will start buying the electric car in mass. Mm-hmm. Eventually our grid will become super green. Yeah. Right. Eventually, you know, every, you know, even, um, you know, every utility in the United States has said by 2050, we're going to get 90% of our power carbon free. Right. Even in the South U.S., like Duke Energy and some of the larger um, utilities in the Southern U.S. said we're going to be primarily fossil fuel free by 2050. So eventually we get there. My worry is that it will take longer to get the electric, to get the car fleet and the transportation fleet in this country electric. So let's get that industry up and moving. And it looks like it is, right? It's finally moving. Mm -hmm. Let's get that industry really mature because by the time it's mature enough that people are, everybody's buying electric cars, even the people who could care less about the environment. Then at that point, the grid will be sufficiently green that those that the the electric cars are really green as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So with the right incentives, with some natural advantages, if there are some natural advantages in some areas with more natural resources, you might see a larger development of energy efficient technology or climate friendly mm-hmm. technology. Do you think that there is that hope for as energy lines become more what was it? The grid um, becomes well. It's got to modernize the and grid. Modernize. It's got to modernize and it's got to create connections mm-hmm. or lines that don't exist right now. Yeah. That start in like let's say the plains of Iowa, where there's excess wind electricity. Mm-hmm. Right now, a lot of that excess wind electricity is just wasted. Yeah. Right. That's got to be shipped to Chicago, mm-hmm. where there's a great need yeah. for fossil fuel-free energy. Mm-hmm. But there's no line that's getting that wind energy, wind electricity to yeah. Chicago. Mm-hmm. So that's like, for example, one of the proposed lines that people have said would really help this country. Because yeah. notice the other thing that would happen if you got that high-powered um, trans uh, electricity line from the middle of Iowa to Chicago, then 
you would have even more incentive in Iowa to build even more wind power because mm-hmm. now there's a large market mm-hmm. who's willing to buy the electricity you're generating, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that's an example of yeah. a line that needs to be created that's not there right now. Yeah. But then the problem, of course, is that there's all the nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard syndrome, right? right? Mm. So people... You, you know, maybe 80% of the landowners along this proposed line are fine. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. if you pay me enough money, I'll give you the right to install a high-tension right. electric wire through my land. But then if there's a few people that just don't want to take the payment, then you get, well, what do you do? Do you somehow kind of build around these landowners who don't want to participate? But then if you kind of, if you, if you, build a, a line around the landers, maybe that raises the cost to the point where it's no longer economical. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you know um, how we can potentially incentivize these people to well, say you, yes? Yeah, or I, maybe I get, do you think we need to use like eminent domain? Well, I mean, or, eminent domain, of course, is very controversial, and that yeah. tends to create a lot of uh, pushback. Mm-hmm. So obviously we shouldn't use eminent domain or as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess one idea is if you throw even more money at them, maybe at some point every <laughs> yeah. everybody has a price, right? Um, one thing that I've always been a little curious about. So for, I took, uh, we had a sabbatical. I had a sabbatical year a couple years ago, and I spent it in Sweden. And a lot of the electric power lines in Sweden they um, bury. It's underground. Interesting. Right. So, um, and that's expensive. And in some parts of the United States, for example, it would be really difficult. Like here in Maine, it's actually difficult to bury lines because it's such a rocky mm-hmm. substrate. But in the Midwest, United States, where it's just mm-hmm. soil, mm-hmm. like good farm soil, um, it may not be that prohibitively expensive just to bury the line. Mm-hmm. And you may find landowners much more willing to participate if they're said, look, do you mind if we bury a line 30, 40 feet under your land? You know, you're not going to get electrocuted or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And we'll pay you for it. And then yeah. they'd say, sure, okay, because it's buried and it's mm-hmm. out of sight. Yeah. So I don't know. I know that there's one line, one of the proposals for getting some of the wind power to Chicago is actually building along a line along an old rail line. So, you know, the rail company owns the line. So as long, you know, there is no private property. I mean, other than the rail line, there's no other private property they would have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So that's one consideration is using corridors that already exist in this country yeah. that were created for other purposes mm-hmm. that would minimize any of the kind of conflict with private landowners. Mm-hmm. So uh, rail line, you know, the old rail lines that we maybe that are not used as much anymore because, you know, in the in the 20th century and the 19th century or especially the 19th century, you know, rail was so important to our economy. But now we don't use rail as much as we used to. So could we use old rail lines? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So the last question that we normally ask all of uh, the podcast guests for uh, the Green Tea Podcast is, what does sustainability mean to you? Oh, what does it mean to me? Huh. I I guess it means getting um, the materials and the things we need and want from life but in a less energy intensive way in a less material intensive way right so as we as the economy 
progresses, our economy, the global economy, other countries' economy as it progresses, hopefully for each unit of consumption, for each unit of whatever we do, every year there's less and less energy and material needed to fulfill that unit of consumption or unit of activity, mm-hmm. right? Or if, it, if, if the amount of energy or material that goes into those activities is not necessarily falling, that they're coming from a source, a power source or whatever, that is not creating negative externalities. So in economics, mm-hmm. a negative externality is, a, is an action that um, inadvertently creates damage, mm-hmm. right? So burning coal for electricity is a perfect example. That creates negative externalities. It creates pollution that's bad for our health, right. bad for the planet. So sustainability for me, I guess, is every year there's less and less negative externalities created Mm. as we go about fulfilling all our wants and desires and, you know, trying to live the best life possible, right? As long as we can keep um, reducing the negative externalities produced, when we do that, that's sustainability. That's progress and sustainability. Great. Well, thank you so much, Professor Nelson, for coming on to this podcast. It was super informational. (laughs) I feel like we learned so much. So. Thank you so much. All right, well, thanks for having me. Thank you, Professor. Thanks.